Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Thank God I'm not a Jets and a Mets fan, but yeah, uh, I, the Mets were always my diehard team growing up. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you had two good years with the Giants. I mean, that's not necessarily like a brag to be a Giants fan over a Jets right. fan by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, I, I was a Jets fan. I want to say like the first two years, like those two Sanchez years when they went oh, yeah. back to back AFC title games. That was fun. And after that, I want to say like four years in, um, my dad and two other dads gave us and their sons permission to choose any other teams that they wanted. <laughs> nice. Like they were like that brutally traumatized by being Jets fans their entire oh, yeah. life. And we all yeah. chose the Cowboys. So oh, we're no. kind of like <laughs> equally traumatized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost worse now. I mean, how, how much they, you know, you get in the first round of the playoffs and you just. It's a team every year, dude. Every single every year. Single year. Great yep. draft pick. Great. Yep. Uh, it just, it's, I don't want to talk about it, but I, uh, growing up in style. So for you as a Mets fan, you grew up obviously with Gary Cohen and Mm -hmm. Keith Hernandez, Ron Darling, which is like the greatest broadcast trio in baseball. If you ask me, and then you also got Howie Rose on the radio. You mentioned Wayne Randazzo. So you growing up uh, there, did you go to many games? Because I know for me growing up right outside Yankee Stadium, I was there all the time. I know you moved to Arizona pretty shortly after while you were still a young kid. But did you, uh, I, I mean, obviously keep in touch and keep watching those guys as you kind of built your craft in broadcasting? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a unique situation because for whatever reason, um, when I lived in New York, I wasn't a big sports fan. I mean, I moved here to Arizona when I was only 10 years old. So yeah. that was around the time I picked up sports. And so it was to the point where I, I had gone to games, obviously, when I was a kid and stuff like that, but wasn't interested enough to really like appreciate it or remember it that well. But um, when I, you know, I was, I became a diehard sports fan as soon as I moved to Arizona. And then at that point, my only connection to the team was the broadcasters. So I just... You know, watching Gary Cohen all day, you know, every single day of the summer and um, Kevin Burkhart, who started out at SNY right, with yeah. Mets, um, those two guys, as well as Howie Rose, really just became idols of mine. I just watching them every single day. And again, being my only connection with the team was growing up. That's how I developed a, like just a respect for the, the broadcast industry and, and specifically baseball. So. Um, Kevin Burkhardt is like the true Cinderella story there. Yes. I remember what, like you two watching games on SNY, him being just like the reporter, which is now, like, I want to say like 90% a female position in mm-hmm. most aspects of sports broadcasting. And he would just do like those little bits and pieces with like communities in the crowd and stuff. And, you know, like pieces that even he said in interviews that like he didn't necessarily want to do, but like that was his climbing. Mean, he did that for so long. And then he finally gets that gig with uh, Fox Sports when he's, he's basically doing all like, the big pregame shows. Like that is like the true one big Cinderella story that we've seen. Someone who literally went from doing, you know, the dirt work to doing something actually like that he wanted to do and actually did what, you know, like all of us would want to do. Working with A-Rod and Frank Thomas and Pete Rose and all those guys, which I find awesome. And that's, that's definitely like that one guy you should definitely look up to when it comes to sports broadcasting. We both got to see him on SNY. 
Yeah, he was always my you know number one idol. I just always liked his work ethic and. You know, he's one of those guys, even from when I very first saw him on SNY, I could tell he was going to be a superstar. Just yeah. everything about, like I said, I mentioned the work ethic, but like his delivery, the depth that he went into in his reports, and even when he would fill in doing play-by-play for the Mets games, uh, you know, mostly during a couple of the spring training ones, he was just excellent at absolutely everything he did. And one thing I really picked up off of Kevin Burkhart that I always admired was you know, I kind of touched on it just now, but his versatility, like from doing reporting to, you know, like you mentioned, he hosts the Fox sports roundtables. He does play by play for the NFL games. I mean, he does literally everything. And so that's something I, in my own career, I've tried to emulate. And that's why I said before, I, you know, I try to pick up as many jobs as possible, doing as many different things as I can, because, you know, you you don't want to be a one trick pony. And Kevin Burkhardt is a perfect example of when you work hard enough and, and you pick up as many different skills and opportunities as possible, you know, that, that makes you as much of an, even more of an asset to, to whoever the company may be that you want to work for. Yeah. Is your main goal to be like a network guy or would you rather broadcast for a team or I guess both in that sense? Cause I know Joe mm-hmm. Davis does both among others. Yeah. I mean, with, with broadcasting, I'm very realistic about it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, I would love to work for a team, but I would never work for a network. Like I would obviously do either one, but I mean, having, having done both throughout the short time I've done this, I, I definitely think the team side is a lot more suits my personality and my, my skill set. Um, I, w- I would prefer to do one team and just become sort of the, uh, the go-to resource or go-to guy for, for that specific market. I think that'd be really appealing to me. Yeah, I mean, one team, you're with them every day. So it's easy exactly. to build those relationships and it's easy to just show up to the ballpark and know what you're talking about as opposed to just showing up and having to get all this new information, talking to new coaches that you don't necessarily have great relationships with or close relationships like you would with a team. So like every time someone asks me that too, like if I was ever fortunate enough to get into that position, I definitely would want to be a team broadcaster, just traveling with them all the time, building those relationships. Because at the end of the day, having those relationships is going to, translate over to the broadcast and making that the best it could possibly be too. A hundred percent. And you know, you hit it right on the head. I mean, the camaraderie you build being around a team every single day of the season, whether it's, you know, road games, home games, even off days. I mean, you just learn so much about them that you would literally never learn from yeah. research or, or doing anything else. And, and, you know, obviously some of the best stories I, I was able to tell on air were from, you know, being around the players every single day and the coaches every single day and being able to experience that camaraderie because that that's something that for me, when it comes to, like you said, network versus uh, or national network versus sort of local uh, working for one team, that that was kind of like the big separating factor for me. I just enjoyed the everyday grind and of being around the same people every day. And, and that was a game changer for me. So what was your first official job? Because you started in high school, right? You were, what, 15 years old when you started? Yeah, I started my junior year of high school. So I was 15 years old, um, and it was a little bit of a weird situation. Um, So I enrolled, I'm not sure how familiar you are with um, the schooling system in Arizona, but I I enrolled in a a trade school called the East Valley Institute of Technology. It's called um, EVIT for short. So basically it's a trade school where um, and just, you get college, um, uh, high school elective credit um, by going to this separate campus uh, trade school, kind of doing a terrible job explaining it. But, um, you know, you can enroll in different trades, whether it's you want to be a firefighter, or a law enforcement, uh, cosmetology. Anyway, I enrolled in their radio broadcasting program because they had 
a fully functioning radio station um, that they were letting the students use in addition to the curriculum that they were teaching them. So um, I, and it's, it's a music station. So I told them before I enrolled, I wanted to work um, in sports broadcasting and they thankfully gave me the opportunity to, to start out doing sports updates at the top of every other hour, um, pre-recorded or live, um, you know, whichever they would let me get my hands on. Um, but that was my junior year of high school. And I was also um, broadcasting our student news uh, at Higley High School, where I, you know, my home school where I actually attended. Um, and the following year, my senior year, we actually had more students uh, that wanted to pursue sports go to EVIT. So we expanded to a talk show um, and the sports programming eventually um, the year after I graduated, this would have been my first official job, um, the trade school that I attended eBay. They hired me on to broadcast high school sporting events. So high school baseball, football, basketball, just around the state of Arizona. Um, and then simultaneously while I was doing that, I also had an internship with a company called AZ Preps 365 um, reporting for uh, high school football. Um, just wherever they would assign me, I would basically call in and do a report every Friday night, whichever game they wanted me at. Um, so those were the two big jobs for me to start with um, as a senior in in high school, um, and that you know eventually translated to just like I kind of like I touched on at the very beginning, just meeting a lot of people, um, yeah. and then sort that sort of just leading to everything else on down the list. So when you when you talk to those guys when you get to Pulse because they were what top forty like one of the top forty yeah. stations mm -hmm. so I mean I'm shocked that they didn't have sports but like what how'd that conversation go because I'm sure they were like all over it at first like yeah I mean why not you know yeah well the station general manager um, Steve Gross who is one of my best mentors of my entire career I mean he I devote my entire career to Steve um, I you know I went there on a visit. And, you know, I had no, I had known going in that it was, you know, it was the music station. So I yeah. wasn't expecting, you know, them to be very flexible about that. But um, Steve, you know, he's the type to go out of his way to help the students no matter what. And when he heard I wanted to do sports, it was a no brainer for him. He said, you know, we can get you, we can set you up doing something, whether it's sports updates or a talk show, you know, whatever it might be. And that's exactly what he did. He, you know, mentored me, gave me the tools to, you know, work on my delivery and, and just the resources to, to get my career jump started. So um, once he heard that's what I wanted to do, he went out of his way to make sure it happened. And uh, I'm forever thankful for that. What was like the first nervous moment for you when like during that whole high school experience, you mentioned reporting for football, you had the, the sports mafia show that I saw too. What, like, what was like the first like in gut thing where you were like, holy crap, like I can't believe I'm actually like starting to do this, like starting my career. Cause you did it at such a young age too, which I feel like most people don't start in high school. Yeah. I mean, I had the benefit of, uh, I think I had mentioned when I was a junior and I was doing the sports updates, a lot of it was pre-recorded. So like that was basically a year straight where I didn't have to do anything live. Um, so I was just, like I said, working on my delivery and, and getting, just getting comfortable, you know, going through the motions of, of writing scripts and broadcasting and that sort of thing. So it got to the point where when I, I was, had to do live updates and live talk shows, in the studio that came a little bit more naturally just because of how much of a routine it had become for me talking, you know, behind the microphone. But yeah. um, the first time I was maybe nervous or, you know, whatever you might call it. Um, when I was reporting the uh, high school football, um, uh, reporting the high school football games for AC preps 365, 
Um, usually I would call into the radio station. Um, so they have a Friday night wrap-up show on Arizona Sports 98.7 FM. So usually when I would call in, um, they would record the interview um, or, you know, my report, and they would chop it up a little bit, edit it together, um, and then play it about 20 minutes later um, with all of the other reports from the reporters, you know, around the state. Um, but there were a couple of times um, where they, you know, they were in a, a, a time crunch. You know, my game went to overtime, and I, I ended up calling them, and they said, we're going to just throw you on the air live. And I was, you know, all I had was just these scattered notes. It wasn't like I had a script down or anything. So I just had to sort of roll with what was on my, my sheet of paper and, and the, you know, the stats and the notes that I had reported and um, just going straight from my cell phone to, to live on, on the air. That was probably the first time where I was, maybe a little bit caught off guard and jittered from, um, you know, just being thrown on the spot. How easy of a transition was that from going, like knowing that it's not live, like that they're just going to like nitpick it afterwards to going from that to live, like or you just transition it as if you were live the entire time, or did you kind of make a big deal out of it being it was your first time? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky because that didn't actually happen until maybe like my fifth or sixth weekend reporting the game. So I kind of had an idea of where I was going to go with it um, as far as, you know, when I would, I would usually do like a little bit of a scoring recap and then uh, high, you know, highlights in the game, that type of thing. So I, I kind of had an idea of how I, I wanted to say it. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, you know, going on to do more live stuff that I start to look back on that experience as more and more um, valuable because, you know, being, there's nothing like being thrown on the spot. Um, you know, that's, it's really invaluable. It's not something you can plan. It's very spontaneous. And if you want to work in this industry, that's something that's going to happen more times than not. Yeah. What do you think was your like first big broadcast blunder that you remember? Cause it's kind of a broken record. I say this all the time when I talk to uh, people who want to work in sports broadcasting on the show. Like I remember one day I at a softball game, I said, sacrifice blunt instead of sacrifice fun. I said, I think I said shot cock instead of shot clock in a basketball game. Like, do you remember the first time you like really muffed up a word and were kind of embarrassed about it? Yeah, uh, there was, there's that one that immediately comes to mind. So my first summer calling minor league baseball. Um, so I'm trying to remember if I think it was this game. So we were out in Grand Junction, Colorado. So I was, I was working in the pioneer league for a team called the Orem Owls. Oh, yeah. um, and one thing about the pioneer league is it's all high elevations, the Rocky mountain region. So you got Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Montana, um, and others. So um, we were playing at Grand Junction, Colorado, which is all the way on the, the west end of Colorado, kind of close to the Utah border, but um, nonetheless, high elevation. Um, and this particular day game, uh, it was a Saturday afternoon game. The ball was absolutely flying out of the park. I think we scored 20 runs that, that day. I mean, our team was talented, but 20 runs at that point was just incredible. And I think, I think the Rockies may have scored like you know, double digits or something like that. But every ball, it seemed like was just flying out of the park. And so um, one of the, one of the balls that was hit all the way out to the left field warning track was just absolutely crushed off the bat. And so I called it as if it was a home run. Um, and I was dead set on it. I was positive. It was a home run. It just came off the bat, probably like 110 miles an hour. Didn't have stat cast at that point, but um, I was sure it was a home run, but sure enough, it was caught sort of routinely at the warning track. And so I felt really, really embarrassed after that. And, you know, luckily for me at the time, it was, I was, uh, you know, the road broadcast, it was in Grand Junction. So a lot of people that are tuning into the game are going to watch the video feed with the home broadcaster. So 
more than likely there weren't too many people listening to that except maybe the players' parents. But um, you know, nonetheless, when you're a broadcaster, you get you get embarrassed by that kind of stuff. And so that was the first, definitely the first one that comes to mind for me. Do you know what us Yankee fans call that? What's that? You John Sterling yourself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I figure that's where you're going with that. <laughs> that's all the guy did my entire childhood. Like it is high. It is far. It is uh, foul ball. And then he, like, yep. he starts talking about like the Buffalo Sabres. Like what the hell are you talking about, dude? Yep. Oh yeah. I, that's one thing with John Sterling. Every time it almost feels like, you know, once a year, one, you know, whenever I tune into Yankee games, at least when I'm listening to them, that happens every so often. <laughs> Dude, Brett Gardner hit a home run. It was against the Indians, I feel like, in the playoffs, like 2017 ALDS. And he hit one, and I didn't hear it live, but it was so bad that it was on YouTube or something. And it was like, it is high, it is far, it is a foul ball. Or no, he didn't even like use the catchphrase. It was more just like, that one's roped deep to right, but it's going to be foul. And then about five seconds later, nobody was talking. He's like, oh, wait, no, it's a home run. It hit the pole. <laughs> and it's like, you really couldn't react. Like, how old is he? 85 years old? Yeah, something like that, yeah. I mean, and, and it's um, it's funny to think about it, too, because he's one of the legendary broadcasters, and that's a reminder that it's okay to make mistakes. I mean, yeah. it, to an extent, though. I mean, obviously, if, when you're somebody as established as he is and, and as some of these guys are, it is okay to make a mistake. But when you're trying to get to that point um, and, and there's, there's high stakes uh, for you as, as, you know, holding a job that so many people want and so many people are trying to persistent, you know, uh, pursue it. It's tough to, to live with the mistakes, but when you're in that position, it, it, you know, I'm sure it's, it's uh, you can, you can live with it a little bit more. <laughs> and I, I don't want to feel like I'm knocking John Sterling, like one of my all all, yeah. <laughs> sports broadcasts. I mean, it's fun sometimes when he does stuff like that, but like he's an icon, at least in New York, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and when you're a broadcaster, you have to be able to make fun of yourself. You have to, and, you know, as a broadcaster, you're going to be one of the most highly scrutinized and uh, people, um, you know, as far as professions go. The, the fans are always critiquing the broadcasters. That's something you got to roll with the punches. You know, if you're, if you're going to get disappointed or discouraged when every time somebody gives you advice or criticism, it's not the field for you. And that's why guys like, like John Sterling and, and so many others excel in broadcasting yeah was gary cohen like your one true inspiration like was he your favorite broadcaster growing up because i had michael k growing up on the yes network yeah it was for me it was a clear just tie between gary cohen and, and kevin burkhart for two facets i mean gary cohen play-by-play -play wise wasn't a question about it Lo always loved how he rose but gary cohen just you know i was always watching the game so i, I just had a different sort of connection and respect for the way that, that he called the games. And then, like I said, I mean, even though Kevin Burkhart wasn't the play-by-play -play guy every day, I looked up to him yeah. almost more than Gary. I mean, it was, those were my two idols growing up really. Yeah. And I mean, you've done it from every spectrum. You've done anchor, you've been an anchor, you've done reporting, broadcasting. Like how different are all three of those when you're prepping for them? Yeah. I mean, it, it really just depends on what you're doing for, for play-by-play. I, go all out of my prep. I, I would stay up, even, you know, in the grind of the minor league season when there's 82 games, I did short season, so it was 82 games, you know, including the playoffs, 76 regular season. But, you know, it was like 76 games and you have five days off the entire season. And even with that, I would stay up till like one or two in the morning doing research, updating my game notes, because, you know, the preparation it, for baseball more than anything is so important because you're going to have all this time to fill with stories and 
numbers and you know whatever else you want to incorporate into the broadcast. So, you know, from from play-by-play standpoint, the preparation is huge. Um, you know, from a research perspective. Okay. But when it's something like anchoring, you want to put a lot of time into to writing a good script, something that's going to flow good, um, not be too cookie cutter, but something that you know you're going to be comfortable um, producing and delivering. Um, and then when it comes to reporting, you're constantly trying to to do it's not necessarily research but it's firsthand um you know obviously you're, you're trying to give give the consumers um or the audience um information that only you can get by being on the sidelines and, and talking to the players and the coaches so it, it's a lot more of a i guess spontaneous trying to find information um as it comes to you by the minute so it's they're all like you said extremely different from one another and um and that's that's one thing. Again, when I think back to Kevin Burkhart, you have to be, be able to sort of adapt to everything. I mean, uh, every job I've ever gotten, um, one of the big selling points and the reasons why I I was told they hired me was versatility. If you can do everything between what you know, broadcasting side, anchoring, play-by-play, reporting, whatever it is. But even aside from that, like I said, these sort of secondary skills of you know, running a media relations setup and, and writing, graphic design, video production, um, you know, extending out so many different places, the more you can learn, the more of an asset you're going to be. And, and that's something that I, you know, specifically when I was in school, I really tried to zone in on. Yeah. I mean, do you feel as if you like, like you're confident and satisfied with your current delivery? I know like still very young in the broadcast business and you're constantly trying to fix certain things and constantly trying to find your own voice and stuff. Do you feel like you're yourself on the air? Or do you feel like there's like this other internal voice coming out? Cause I know for me, it's like, I try to be as real as possible on the air. Cause you got to differentiate yourself. You got to be different than any, everybody else just with your voice alone. And then sometimes as soon as the camera turns red, as soon as that like red signal goes on, there's this broadcast voice in me. And I'm like, where the hell did that come from? Mm-hmm. Like, you feel like you're constantly working on that delivery still, or do you feel satisfied? Yeah. I mean, I honestly, you could ask me that question 15 years from now and I don't think I'd be satisfied. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's the type of thing too, where for specifically for me, that was one of the big humps I had to get over when I first started broadcasting because I growing up was a, and I, and I still am sort of an introvert, was always very quiet. So I had to project better. And so a lot of people would make fun of me for how different I sounded when I was on the air. And so just, just from being in this, choosing this career, I've kind of developed more into that sort of introvert, extrovert mix to where I wasn't necessarily myself on the air to begin with, but that's sort of the person I've grown into to becoming, um, you know, sort of as an introvert trying to, trying to trying to make it in, in a an extrovert career choice if that makes sense but um that was always like i said one of my biggest criticisms coming out of high school and early into college was you know just sound more natural sound more real and um i mentioned this even when talking again about kevin burkhart earlier when when you watch him make his delivery and and you know the way he projects it's like he's talking to his best friend uh and that's something that once I sort of caught on to that, um, I have always tried to emulate that when I'm anchoring or reporting or whatever it might be. So I, that was something that did not come naturally to me at all, um, at least in that context. And, and then, again, you know, even if I was pretty happy with my delivery or, or whatever it might be, I, I, don't, I don't think I would ever be satisfied. I think there's always something to be improving upon. 
So going back to your high school days, you make the transition. Like, how big of a transition was calling high school games? Did you get a play-by-play opportunity before you went to ASU? Yeah, so um, it's a little bit of a, a jumble as far as how everything developed because it was so much at one time. Yeah. But uh, my first play-by-play gig was the one where I was hired by Evit to call their um, high school baseball, football, and basketball events. So I didn't do it for my home school. I did it for Evit. Um, they would send me to, you know, whatever whatever the, the game of the week sort of was. And so that was the extent of my play-by-play experience before I got to um, minor league baseball. And that was a massive, massive jump because at the time, and this is one of the craziest stories I have, and it's not, not even so much a story as just sort of the way things developed. Um, at the time, I got my job um, in Orem, which was, my again, my first play-by-play job. Um, in 2017, which was when I was a sophomore in ASU, I had only called seven baseball games play-by-play. So when I got that job and I, I was reaching out to the team, I actually had sent them a football play-by-play tape. It was just an eight-minute reel of, of football highlights cut together, um, and they they liked my voice. I said, are you sure you don't want me to send you a couple innings or anything? And they said, no, we love, we love the way you sound. We love your delivery. You know, we want you to be the voice of our team. And it's just, uh, you know, jumping from, from that, from barely having any baseball experience to professional baseball, affiliated baseball, um, where so many people were listening and there's a lot of ears and eyes on you, was honestly, I, you know, I wasn't ready for it. I was a little bit, I bit off a little bit more than I can chew at first, but I wouldn't have had it any other way because I would have never learned the experience, the experiences and the lessons and yeah. everything that I did from, from making that jump so drastically as I did. So just to go back to that last question, you have that experience right out of high school. Like, What was the whole process like uh, entering the Walter Cronkite school? Was it like, did you actually have to have experience to get into that school or was it more of just like, that's what I want to pursue and you just applied like any other student? Like, how'd that work? Yeah, you don't need to necessarily have experience going in there because they, you know, that's what they're training you on. They want to make sure that you're leading the school with experience, not necessarily getting there with it. But for me, um, you know, you can be a student, you know, pursuing broadcasting anywhere in the country, and you know that the Cronkite School is top three in the country. And so for me, looking at it in terms of, you know, in-state tuition, and it's one of the best broadcasting schools, and I would have gotten an academic scholarship, it was just a no-brainer for me. As soon as I knew I wanted to pursue broadcasting, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, they are selective when it comes to GPA, so grades were always a strength of mine. And so I didn't have to worry about anything like that. It was, you know, pretty, pretty much a no brainer for me to, to enroll there. Yeah. I, I can't really say the same thing when it comes to grades. They're not bad, but they're not, they're not Walter Cronkite-esque. How, like, how many students were in that Cronkite school? Like how many people are, are you quote unquote competing with to get certain opportunities? You know, that's, that's one thing. I don't know if I have an exact number. I think in my specific graduating class, there may have been um, somewhere in the 500 range. Um, and that's people that are pursuing sports. You know, some of them are pursuing oh, sports. Yeah. Some of them are pursuing news. Some of them are looking for more PR stuff, which would go through the school, um, writing-oriented. Um, so when, you, when it sort of breaks down into those clicks, um, when, you know, people pursuing the exact same career that I was, sports broadcasting, you know, whether it is play-by-play or anchoring or whatever it might be, or, you know, maybe about, and I think about the clubs I was involved with, like Blaze Radio, which was the student radio station, um, and then the, they had the, the student television network, too. 
probably about 50 to 60 people um, competing for the same reps, which, you know, if I had to give advice to anyone looking for, you know, looking to take that next step and get into college, I would definitely say the reps are the most important thing. So if you're enrolling in a school that is that competitive, when you have, you think of a Cronkite, you think of a, you know, Syracuse, um, you got to be very persistent with trying to get those opportunities. And I was lucky enough to where I had the, the means for those reps going into Cronkite. So I didn't necessarily have to rely on the student radio station and those calls for my experience. I was getting it on the side calling high school games. Right. And then anything I got from school, luckily, was just an added bonus, which I'm extremely lucky for because I did not live on campus. So if I had to rely on you know, the campus oriented experience, I probably wouldn't be where I am today because the reps are so important. And that's something that if you're, again, a broadcaster up and coming and trying to make it in the industry, that's something when you're enrolling in college, you got to be very mindful of. So in those early years, like freshman, sophomore year, because I know you're you're still with Pulse at that point doing play-by-play, you got internships. So you're, like you said, like keeping those reps up, still getting, uh, uh, I guess, again, like reps in, but like, what were you doing with ASU specifically? Like, what kind of opportunities were there there, like, as a young, uh, a younger classman? Yeah, like I, I mean, I mentioned a little bit. There's a lot of clubs you can enroll in. Um, they do a, a pretty good job of making sure the kids get experience. Um, so I, as a freshman, even though I had a, a lot on my plate, uh, I still tried to get involved as, as much as possible. So I went to the, um, the, the meetings for the student radio station, Blaze, where... You had the opportunity to um, have a, a talk show or you could even do sports updates, that type of thing that you could audition for. But um, at that point, I was more interested in, in the play-by-play aspect because they um, obviously, as the student radio station, have access to calling every single ASU athletics event from whatever it is, football, volleyball, baseball, basketball, hockey, everything. So I was mostly um, involved with that. I did try to do... Um, Walter Cronkite Sports Network, WCSN, which is the, the student TV station. They would have a live show, a 30-minute live show. It was very similar to a Sports Center outline that they would do every Friday. And I was really excited to do that. That was actually one of the main reasons I applied for the Cronkite School. But it just worked out to where every Friday night at that point, like you mentioned before, I was reporting and broadcasting at high school football game. So I couldn't do it every Friday night. So I had to basically stick with uh, the student radio station uh, calling play-by-play for those games all throughout the four years. And obviously as I you know, got to become a, an upperclassman and more of an established name within the school, um, the opportunities became a little bit more, um, you know, I, they were a little more, uh, I got them more often, I guess I should right. say. Yeah. Uh, I would get maybe one or two calls as a freshman or sophomore, and then by the time I graduated, I had maybe four or five baseball calls. So that was something that I, I kind of, I, I, I wish I would have been able to live on campus because the, the opportunities would have been, there would have been a lot more for, uh, if I lived over there rather than commuting an hour to school every day. <laughs> Right. And you guys also have, what, Fox Sports for a lot of those Pac-12 games, right? So, like, you're competing with professionals at the same time within the actual school of journalism. Exactly. I mean, and that was something to where, you know, whether it was trying to find boot space for some of the student broadcasts, um, if it was a big game, like a 
say an ASU versus U of A baseball game, yeah. they might not have enough room for us in the press box because we might have national um, media, we might have Pac-12 Network doing their national broadcast or you know their league-wide broadcast, and we would get shoved out. You know whether it was on press row or I, I've had to call games from outside the press box and all kinds of places. So it was like you said, it's competitive um, in terms of the students, and then also obviously uh, with people who are already established in the industry getting those opportunities. Yeah. What's the whole production setup like? Like you mentioned, you could start your own talk show if you wanted. To. Obviously, the booths you guys had were incredible. Like, what was the whole setup like for you guys? Did they have like high end mics and all that stuff for you guys to like start out with, or was it more of just like here's what we got? Yeah. Um, at Cronkite, they have a pretty good studio setup. So, um, I, there's six floors on the building, and um, the sixth floor is basically where all that is. So, um, they have a Huge, huge um, news studio um, right when you walk up to the sixth floor. And they have a separate one, actually, that they use for sports. And that's, I believe that's still where the Suns do their pre- and post-game show from. So it's actually, you know, it's industry-quality, state-of-the-art um, studios. Um, and then there's also the editing bays where it's just, you know, you have the really good microphones, just like you're using right now, and all the padding on the walls and, and that type of thing. So... Um, it was all great equipment. And if you ever needed anything else, whether it was a camera or a lavalier microphone or whatever it is uh, for a separate project you were working on, um, you could always check it out from the equipment lab with no problems as long as you always returned it on time. You could always check it out with no problems. So that was one thing I can definitely say about Cronkite. Excellent resources. And, you know, they, if you wanted to do something, they made sure it was possible for you. Wow. Kind of wish I kept my grades up now. Fly <laughs> from Walter Cronk. I mean, I like where I'm at with GC right now. There's literally five of us. That's great. Six of us or seven. I get in that range. Like we all get equal opportunity for games, calling games for athletics and interviewing players for content. So like, I wouldn't want it any other way. Despite and like I said, that's something that was very. You know, I, I would be lying if I if I didn't think about that a lot in college when I was going up against fifty yeah. or sixty people for reps. I mean, you've. I you know, if I could go back, I might think twice about going somewhere where. The, you know, I, I would be getting a lot more experience every single day and, and you know, not having to compete for it. But at the same time, that having to fly my way and be that persistent about it was, yeah. you know, it kind of shaped who I am a little bit. <laughs> Knowing that you have over 500 students doing what you want to do, what you want to pursue as your dream, like that's got to motivate you. That's got to set your soul on fire if that's truly what you want to do. So like you can look at it through that lens too, you know, like where like we have five or six people, like we're going to get all the opportunities we want. We got to make the most of it, but you're literally a small fish in an, in an entire ocean at ASU trying to get opportunities. Yeah. And a lot of people, because it's such a renowned school around the country, there are a lot of people that come into there with a built-in reputation of whether it's, you know, having, having done internships and jobs already and, having a lot on their resume. So, that, you know, some people walk in with a reputation already to where yeah. you're already behind the eight ball as soon as you get there. Um, yeah. and, and when you think about it like that, it's like, you know, um, you know, you, you got to work a little extra hard if you come in as, like you said, a small fish in a big pond. And, um, I, you know, someone else described it to me. Uh, I was getting advice from somebody a couple of years ago, and they described it to me as like boot camp. You know, it, it weeds yeah. out. And I mean this in, you know, a, a good way, obviously. It weeds out the people who aren't strong enough to to pursue it because it really is a, a very mentally draining and difficult industry to work in if you can't 
you know, keep your head on straight and come to terms with, you know, the fact that it is very difficult to get those reps. And when you get them, you have to really capitalize. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and but so you're still with Pulse at that point, calling play by play. You got internships, you got ISM Raceway as well with John giving you that opportunity. How many dates did you actually work when it came to pit no reporting? Yeah, so that was actually um, the first internship, or I guess it was technically a job seasonally, that I got through Cronkite. Um, so I started up there November of 2015, and then they ended the pit notes program, as you know, obviously, um, in November of 2018. So it ended up being four years, two weekends per year, and then there was I did one weekend of IndyCar, so... I guess that's almost 10, 10 race weekends. And for me, um, NASCAR was actually, believe it or not, very randomly my favorite sport growing up. So I, and again, yeah, obviously you know that, but that was like a dream come true for me to be working in the pits every day and talking to the drivers. And that was, I look back on that as probably maybe the fondest memories of my career to date, even though it was, it was PR work, but you know, being in that setting and so, you know, just learning the ropes in, in the NASCAR industry was so fun um, all throughout when I was in college. Yeah, so it was like five of us. It was me, yeah. Cole, two others working for uh, uh, John Charan, who mm-hmm. uh, big broadcast media professional. Mm-hmm. Grateful for the opportunity I got that yeah. uh, November 2018 yep. for ISM Raceway. And like you said, like you and Cole were just ecstatic. Every time we came back, like after each race, we were interviewing as many racers as we could. Like, I'm just like, okay, Mr. Kyle Busch, okay. Like, and I come back, it's like, that was cool. Like I grew up, like I knew these names, but like you guys being big NASCAR boys, mm-hmm. you guys were just like, oh my God, like look what I just did. And yeah. I'm just kind of like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool. Like what, yeah. what do you, what kind of attracted you to NASCAR right away? Cause like, that's like probably the one sport I wasn't necessarily attracted to, but when I first saw it live and it's working those things, I was like, holy crap, like this is actually like wicked entertaining. Like what turned mm-hmm. you on to NASCAR at a young age? Yeah, this is actually, this is probably the most unique effect, unique fact about myself um, is that NASCAR was the first sport I ever got into. That was like the gateway sport for me. So, yeah. um, and it, you know, I'm, I'm not sure many people can say that, especially work ones that work in football and, and baseball teams. I mean, NASCAR was, that was it for me. Um, my dad just went to a race one time back in 2008. Um, and then when he came back, since he was there, you know, we watched it on TV and um, that, I don't know. I, he, he picked a driver to root for Jimmy Johnson. And that, that was something that was new to me, finding a, something to root for, you know, a reason to watch something live on TV. I thought was pretty cool. And I started watching the races every weekend to a point where, you know, I had nothing else going on. I was 11 years old. I became absolutely obsessed with NASCAR to a point where it was like ridiculous. I, I would write scribble number 48 next to my name when I would sign things. And like, it was, it was crazy, but, um, you know, just, just by chance, I don't know, but by, Somehow my dad went to a race and came home and we watched it together and I just was captivated. <laughs> and that, so that was your, Jimmy Johnson was your guys' driver growing up and then you get to interview him one-on-one, right? Just a few. Yeah, yeah he was my driver. Um, everyone in my, that was another thing that actually made NASCAR really appealing is everyone in my family picked different drivers. So it was kind of like an ongoing rivalry every week. Um, but yeah, interviewing Jimmy Johnson and even not even when I interviewed him, but the first time I met him, uh, which is an unbelievable story uh, when I was like 13 years old. But when I first interviewed him, that is the highlight of my career to date. I mean, that was, 
he was my role model growing up. Like, forget broadcasting role models. He was my life role model growing up. And getting to pick his brain, um, even though it was for just a project for school, wasn't getting paid to do it, um, that was the shining moment of my career to date because he, Jimmy Johnson was, again, he was my role model. Just the way he handles himself in life and, and his career competitively, um, you know, everything about that experience was unbelievably humbling and I, I can't even believe I, I got to do that. <laughs> I couldn't imagine meeting like an idol or a hero of yours and then him turning out or him or her, I guess, turning out like no what near what you would have expected them to be like, like, like totally rude, totally nasty. And you're just like, oh, damn. I, I, I look for you, 13 years old. Like what was it like meeting Jimmy Johnson then? Like, did he say anything to you? Was it just like, hey buddy, like what was that experience like? Yeah, this is, this is an unbelievable story. So I was, um, this was 2013, so I would have been actually 16 years old. Um, I went to a tire test at Phoenix Raceway in October. So, uh, you know, obviously I'm sure not a lot of people were familiar with what that is, but um, a lot of times Goodyear, the tire provider for the, the, the sport, they'll test at random tracks throughout the year. So it wasn't a race. It was just a test that um, a lot of tracks will just open those up to the fans. And being the obsessive NASCAR fan I was, me and my brother drove out there an hour and 15 minutes just to go to this tire test. Wow. Um, and then by chance, while we were leaving, um, Jimmy was there, obviously. And I had seen, he posted on Twitter, he was going to go to the Diamondbacks playoff game. They were playing the Brewers in the divisional series. And my brother's like, you know what? We should probably go to that game. What if, what if we see Jimmy there? And I was like, that's absolutely never going to happen. Not a chance in hell. Why would we even do that? Yeah. Um, and I can't remember why. My brother actually couldn't go, but I, so I ended up going to this game by myself. It was pouring rain. I, I just distinctly remember this night. Pouring rain, bought a ticket from a scalper, walked in there, and it's, you know, it's the division series. There was like 48, 49,000 people there. And I'm like, I'm really going to find Jimmy Johnson? Are you kidding me? So I, I go up to my nosebleed seat where, you know, I'm in like the 45th row at the, the very top of the stadium. And then by chance, I'm looking up at the, the video board and I see that, you know, they're just scanning by the crowd and um, they go by the dugout. And I just saw Jimmy Johnson's face just pop up at the bottom left corner of the screen by chance. They weren't even saying like, welcome to the park, Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. Uh, I just saw him there and I was like, okay, that's the home dugout. You know, I came here to see Jimmy Johnson. I might as well go see if, you know, I can get down there somehow. And the security was unbelievable. I mean, I had to, and I was a very small, you know, probably five foot two, like hundred pound kid trying to slip by security, like four different ways of security. But between an inning, like the third or fourth inning, I somehow snuck all the way down there. And I was like, holy shit, he's right there. And I'm, I, was, I was just looking at it. I was like, I just walked right up to him. And I had, since I had come from the track, I had like my cars and my hat with me and I had him sign it. And, you know, that's a very weird thing to do. You know, you go out of your way to to, to, to meet your, your childhood idol at a, a Diamondbacks playoff game randomly. Um, and he could not have been more welcoming and nice and, like, just unbelievably, uh, you know, again, welcoming to me. It was, it was an unbelievable experience just meeting him. And it, like you said, just know, knowing that he was the person that, that I grew up idolizing it and he lived up to the, the expectation I was expecting. And um, yeah, that was just one of the most odd and like unforgettable stories I'll ever have to tell. 
sounds like an incredible journey too. I mean, like I, I can relate, like being like a really scrawny kid growing up, like getting through security is a lot easier than it would be now, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, How, for sure. What year was that? 2010, 11? That was uh, 2013. So I was, I would have been, that was even before I pursued broadcasting actually. Yeah. So that was a while ago. <laughs> So when when you made the move to Arizona, how old were you? You said you were ten years old. Yep, I was about ten. Um, it's two thousand six. So obviously, growing up in Staten Island, you stay a Mets fan. You're watching games. So like, at what age do you think that you actually pursued? Like, you were like, okay, this is kind of something I want to do before high school. Um, yeah, it was probably around the time I was a sophomore in high school because at that point, I had I, you know I had mentioned Evit. Um, the trade school I had gone to where I got all of that experience. Um, and I was kind of looking at that, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to enjoy doing? And I was browsing all the trades they had there. With, you know, like I said, whether it was law enforcement or, you know, um, computer technology or whatever. And I looked at the radio broadcasting one. And I just, you know, I think I think about how much I enjoy watching Gary Keith and Ron and and the Mets games and how how much I love watching live sports and and just the the camaraderie of, of being around with those same people every day and and building a relationship with the fans and um, that was kind of the the moment for me I was just thinking about the different avenues I could go and and what I enjoyed in life and what I enjoyed was sports so it was kind of a no brainer for me which it was a little weirder at the time because like I said I was. I was an introvert. I was a very shy kid. I had to grow into a little bit more of a hybrid personality just based on what, you know, what the career entails. But um, that was pretty much it for me. Maybe my sophomore year of high school. And I, again, went on that visit to Evit, told them what my intentions were. And and that was uh, life-changing. So you have that experience going into high school, you go to the Walter Cronkite school. How humbling is it? Because you talked about it before, doing like a plethora of different things. How humbling is it working in minor league baseball? Because you worked for three teams in minor league baseball? Yeah, so it was two teams, um, one each in 2017 and 18. And then um, uh, 2019 is when I graduated. So I couldn't actually work for a team because of when the graduation was scheduled and I wanted to do it in person. Yeah. Following your 2020, um, well, this year, when I worked for the Rays, but that was not an on-air role. That was um, major league level, but it was a production assistant position. But um, yeah, that was something that was very different for me because I think unlike a lot of people who pursue broadcasting, I never played sports at all growing up. You know, uh, a lot of people, the story is, you know, they played sports, um, things didn't pan out for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, they pursued broadcasting because that's what they loved. I had never been around a team every day. I had never been around a baseball team. I had never even been in a locker room yeah. um, by the time I started pursuing this career, which is a very, very uh, unique thing to say. And so I had to, you know, uh, adapt quickly and, and learn on the fly. And it was, it was incredible to go from, you know, working at, uh, as a sandwich artist at Subway every day to working at the ballpark every single day, you know, between 10 and 12 hours a day, just, Putting in hours where, where you're even working as much as like 25 days in a row it was uh, it was an incredible grind and I I feed off of that you know I'd love to do that again. <laughs> right, so you're doing play by play, you're doing media relations. I assume you're doing sales. Like, how many different things are you doing all at once? Yeah, the two teams that I had worked for it was um, it was pretty much like the media relations side was actually primary. 
And then the broadcasting side was a little bit more secondary, you know, just depending on what each team, how they value the different departments. But um, I was not full-time either of those two positions. I was either part-time or stipend. So um, didn't have to do any kind of sales, but um, the media relations side was a huge part of it. Um, And I had to dedicate unbelievable amounts of hours to that. Um, You know, I could have, I'm holding my game notes right here doing, you know, media relations work. Um, that was sort of the, a lot of people who pursue minor league baseball, they think of that as maybe like a, the throw-in responsibilities. Like if you're going to do play-by-play, you also have to do media relations, but it's really the other way around. You have to be dedicated to, to your craft as far as, you know, making sure that everyone's interviews are getting scheduled accordingly and, and coordinated properly and being professional about it. Um, and one thing that I took a lot of pride in was creating my game notes because, um, you know, I would look around the league and see what other people had done for game notes. Um, and, and I used my game notes for, as the main resource for when I was calling the games. So I, um, entering that job, um, the, the media relations, as soon as I got there became priority number one, because I totally revamped the game notes, um, for both teams that I went to. Um, and you know, that was a huge deal, all the media relations responsibilities, because it directly related to the broadcast reps that I was getting. And, you know, if I did a good job with my re- media relations responsibilities, it led to more success behind the microphone. Um, and then obviously, you know, not just from calling play-by-play, but for depending on the team you work for, you might have to host a post-game show or, um, you know, do pre-game interviews and that type of thing. So um, there is an unbelievable amount of work that comes with working in minor league baseball. And again, that was just for working for two short season teams. I'm sure, and I know from just secondhand, from talking to so many people um, that I'm good friends with who have worked uh, for full season minor league teams and obviously major league teams, that the workload gets even larger unless you have a a larger department where you can sort of delegate some of the work. But um, it is an absolute grind. And it's, I've talked to a lot of people who, um, you know, hiring directors and owners of teams and stuff like that who directly look at minor league baseball experience specifically because of how much of a grind it is. They look at it, look at it as if, you know, if you've worked in minor league baseball, you can work anywhere. If you can endure that kind of grind and that many different responsibilities at once and, and do a good job and last all season, then, you know, that, that says a lot about you. So you're literally putting together your own information in that sense with media relations. You're putting together the media guide, you're interviewing players, coaches, et cetera. Like you're literally doing what you need to do on a broadcast. Like there's the rosters right there, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it depends. Like, you know, everyone does their game notes differently. Some teams in the the leagues I worked for, their game notes might've been four pages. It just depends on how much effort you want to put in. So for me, when I had gotten to the team, I think the the you know the game notes template they had been using in years past was like ten or eleven pages, which is pretty substantial. But you know, again, me specifically, I liked to use the game notes again as like my main resource. Didn't need to have all kinds of other papers and packets and, and tabs open on my computer. So I went, you know, I, I made my game notes template extremely thorough, and it was at one point it was like twenty six pages. And my general manager of the team was like. We, we don't need that much. You might need that much, but we definitely don't need that much. And so I had to even dial it back a little bit. But, you know, even the template I'm using right now um, is like 20, 22, 23 pages. It just depends on how seriously you take it, who's using the game notes. And, you know, for me, 
you know, I, I'm the one that think, I think you can never have too much information. I mean, if okay. you're, and, and you know, if it gets overwhelming and, and somebody needs to, to know where something is, you can point them in the right direction, but it just depends on, you know, um, how much you know about the players too. You know, if, if uh, you're writing player bios and you know a lot about the players, it's, you don't know a lot about the players. It's going to be a pretty short little section there, but if you know a lot about them and their past experience and you have stories to tell, you, know, you can fill up a pretty good chunk there. So the, I guess, yeah. What I'm trying to say is the more you can experience with the team and, you know, the more you're around that, you kind of, it becomes your lifestyle. So you can fill out those game notes. And like you said, you are definitely getting all the content yourself to put in there. Right. And again, being a team broadcaster, it makes it all the more easy. But for, so media relations being the vocal point of those jobs, what was the, like the broadcast like from a production standpoint? Did you ever have any big issues when it came to broadcasting games with, with everything? Luckily, I didn't. Um, one of my selling points to um, the first minor league team I worked for was, you know, having worked at the radio station, um, I, I knew how to engineer a whole broadcast by myself. And right. coming into that first season of minor league baseball, um, just through some common connections I had made, I worked all spring training for the Chicago Cubs, engineering their radio um, stream, their online broadcast. So I would play the commercials, turn the microphones on and off, and that's exactly what you're doing in minor league baseball. So from a production standpoint, if I was able to engineer a major league spring training broadcast, I basically told them, again, as one of my selling points, you know, there's not going to be any sort of production issues. If I can run the soundboard myself, play the commercials, you know, turn my microphone on and off and, and do all of that while still broadcasting the game, that's one less person you have to hire. That's, you know, if you can control all the cards, you, you don't have much to worry about. So... Um, and there were there were also video video um, elements to the minor league broadcast. So I wasn't watching those live because I wasn't producing the video side. I'm sure there there probably were some blunders there as far as you know whether it was cameraman missing the play or stuff like that. But it, from an audio perspective, everything I was in charge of, at least in minor league baseball, I didn't have any any kinds of blunders other than if you know I ran to the bathroom and came back. You know, in the half inning, like maybe five seconds later, something like that. Yeah, I, I actually did that this past year. I had like a stomach ache. I, I told my color guy, I'm like, can you take over for like the next inning or two? Came back. It was like I never left. Yeah, that's all. That's all it is. You've got to be able to cover yourself. You know, cover your tracks. <laughs> so, what was like your first like broadcast? I what was it like a broadcast engineer job? I know you did that with uh, Tampa Bay this year. And did you work for what was it, the Cubs in spring training? As a broadcast engineer? Yep. So it was actually, um, it happened through people I had met um, at EVIT, the radio station, The Pulse. Um, our faculty sports director, uh, had he used to work for ESPN 1000, which is in, it's a radio station in Chicago. And just through some connections I had made there, um, you know, I figured out that they needed a, uh, they needed somebody to, to engineer their spring training broadcast. Um, and I had experience doing it for the high school games and for, you know, just various, you know, when I was running the board during my talk show and stuff like that. So there was, a, there was obviously a little bit of coaching the first week or two of spring training, but um, that was the spring training of 2017 where I was doing that. And that, you know, that gave me a chance to, you know, I was sitting right, right next to the play-by-play voice of the Cubs, Len Casper, and then also, yeah. also um, Mick Gillespie, who's also been another great mentor of mine. He's the double-A voice of um, the Cubs, uh, uh, the Tennessee Smokies, but I had the chance to pick their brain about pursuing a career in play-by-play. Um, and that's when they sort of pointed me in the direction of, 
you know, college summer leagues or minor league baseball, if you can get your hands on that. So I just reached out to as many places as I could. And, and that was um, having that experience was absolutely vital to the minor league baseball um, experience or else I would have never gotten those, those reps um, calling games in, in those two leagues. How similar was that job to the one that you had this year with Tampa Bay? I know this one was more of a full-time gig, mm-hmm. uh, working alongside uh, like Dave Wills and all that. Like how, how different or the same were those two jobs? Yeah, so I mean, it, it was actually kind of, it felt like deja vu as far as um, during the spring training games, right before COVID happened, obviously. We got two weeks of spring training in, um, and my responsibilities engineering the Rays broadcast were identical to what I was doing for um, the Cubs. It was just different different software that we were using to play the commercials and that type of thing. But again, like you mentioned, I mean, it was a full-time job with, with Tampa Bay. So I was there from January all the way through uh, through almost May when there was doubt there was going to be a baseball season. So they cut me loose, but um, there was a lot more work in the office and on the promotional side of the broadcasting um, and the, really the logistics side of, of planning out, um, you know, where we were going to do our remote broadcasts. And, and if I had stayed there, if, if COVID-19 didn't happen, um, I would have been producing the pre and post game show, which would have been done remotely. They would have done that at bars and restaurants and from the stadium and stuff like that. So I would have been producing that. Um, but the actual spring training side of it was identical to what I was doing with the Cubs. Wow. So was this before or after the season started when they sent you home? So it, it was before. So I, like I got there in January, um, was working at the stadium at the Tropicana field through, uh, you know, when that first COVID outbreak happened, when Rudy Gobert got sick, um, and then from that point on, they had me working from home for two months. I lived right next door to the stadium. So I would, you know, look outside this, my window and see the stadium, but I would be working on, you know, different production elements and, and you know, uh, commercials and we would be re-airing old broadcasts where I would have to, ed- you know, edit out the commercials and, and enhance the audio quality. And we made a, f- a few fun social media videos. We had to get creative with no games happening and it was you know, you're, t- you're talking through March and April and a little bit of May where there's no games happening. We had to still come up with content to blow out. So I was working from home for two months doing that. And then it was, uh, I can't remember if it was early May or late April is when they sent me home. Because they, at that point in time, didn't think there would be a baseball season. But obviously there was. <laughs> oh, that's lame, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be where I am today. <laughs> that's true. So now you're with... The Arizona Rattlers and then uh, that Tucson team in the Arena Football League? Yep, yep. So it's um, the Tucson Sugar Skulls and the Arizona Rattlers. Um, and it's it's now the indoor football league that they each play in. So I, I run the exact same position for both teams. So I run the media division and the public relations, um, media and PR director for both teams, which is going to be quite a hassle, you know, being two, you know, for two cities that are 100 miles away. It should be pretty yeah. fun, but... Um, we'll have some some broadcast roles to share eventually down the road once the season gets a little bit closer. But um, you know, I've the past couple of years, I, I really have wanted to work my way into the football industry because you know it's fun. I love baseball. I mean, it's it's incredible. But if I had the chance, I would have loved to to get you know get my foot in the door with the football team and eventually you know maybe see where that track could take me as far as NFL. Um, you know, just because it's you know to change a pace from baseball too, and obviously weaving the team right in the middle of when there was supposed to be a baseball season. It gave me the perfect opportunity to do that. So I'm, you know, I, I'm a big, big believer that everything happens for a reason. And I, I think that that was the reason why it happened. <laughs> do you like where you're at right now with your position with these two teams, as opposed to Tampa Bay? 
I mean, it's definitely a lot more challenging. I mean, yeah. I would compare, you know, what I was doing in Tampa Bay was, it was intern work, really. I mean, it was stuff that was very easy. I, I would find myself bored a lot of the time, especially because there was no baseball season, so there weren't as much things to do. But, yeah. you know, here, and I've only been here almost two months, um, there's always something to do. And, you know, when you're running the whole di media division and the whole PR division, uh, there's just so much that, that that entails that, you know, even if you don't have any necessarily projects to work on, there's always things where you can be getting out in front of, uh, whether it's a graphic for social media, which I, I run the social media accounts too, or thinking about content, uh, video content we might be able to post down the road a couple months from now or stuff like that. So yeah. um, for me, that's been a big thing for me. I always have wanted to challenge myself no matter where I am. Yeah. And so from that perspective, I do like it a lot better. And I'm learning the ropes of working for a professional football team for the first time. So that's something that, again, I, I've wanted to get experience doing. So I'm thankful I'm going to get the experience doing that. How much creative control do you have when it comes to creating some of this content in media relations? It's pretty much 100%. I mean, um, our uh, team president, who is also the owner of the Tucson team, which is sort of why I work for both, yeah. um, Kevin Guy is... Um, given me the reins to do pretty much anything with his approval. I mean, it's, you know, it always has to go through their eyes and the owner's eyes and that type of thing. But when it comes to the specific ideas and that sort of thing, um, I, I have almost total creative control. I, you know, I make the, the graphics elements myself and I was just working on my game notes template right before I jumped on this call and, and that type of thing. So it's pretty cool. I'm, I mean, I'm not the most creative person to begin with when you can kind of bounce ideas off of somebody who's been in this industry and, and you know, has bright ideas like uh, Kevin Guy has, um, it's, it's, it's a good mix, I think. Yeah, and that's how you get out of your comfort zone, too. That's what's going to make you better overall. Exactly. Do you like living back at a, in your home state as opposed to Tampa Bay, Florida? Did you like Tampa? I loved Tampa. Actually, um, of everywhere I've moved, I've moved at like three or four different places for jobs. Tampa is probably the favorite place I've moved to. Really? Just really cool. And I was living in St. Petersburg, um, which is in Tampa Bay, obviously. But St. Pete was incredible. Awesome beaches. It's different, yeah. Awesome downtown. Really nice. Just a cool lifestyle. Um, but I, you know, I'm a, come from an Italian family. I'm a big family guy. Um, being back home with my family is, is definitely for me. And I, I have all, all my friends out here, obviously. So um, it's comforting to know I'll, I'll be here in my home. I guess home state technically you got New York, but you know, I got my family and friends here. I'll be here for at least another year, which is comforting to know. Like when you're job searching, you don't know where you're going to end up. So right. I like to travel. I like to, I like the idea of spontaneously, you know, just dropping everything and moving somewhere for a job. But it's definitely a, I love it when, when, you know, you can be at home with family and friends at any time. And then you're also pursuing the career, which is pretty cool. Did you enjoy living in Troy? Because that's like relatively close to where you grew up for the first 10 years, right? Yeah. So I, when I was living in Staten Island, for anyone who doesn't know, that's that's one of the five boroughs of New York City. So oh, yeah. um, the most suburban sort of part. But um, when I was a kid, I would go upstate, uh, which is where sort of where I was working. Um, I would go upstate on vacations every single summer to a lake up there called Sacandaga Lake. Um, which was only like a half hour from Troy. Um, so I was familiar with the area. I love upstate, really green, really. It doesn't even feel like New York, if you think about it. But I was so happy to be in that area of um, the country. Like of all the 150 minor league teams I could have worked for, I'm 
unbelievably glad it was that one because I even got to make trips down to Staten Island um, when we played the Staten Island Yankees and even the Brooklyn Cyclones who were the Mets affiliate. Um, that is a really fun league to work in. And um, having grown up, going on vacations in upstate New York, it was really uh, kind of surreal to be working there. And I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Interesting. So now you're home and I was looking at your, at the resume. It was like broadcast, 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 pizza place. So your parents yeah. own a pizza place. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of, kind of random. Yeah. Just throwing it at the bottom there, but um, yeah, at the beginning of, yeah. At the beginning of last year, my parents or my family, uh, we opened up um, a restaurant called Amici pizza. It's in Mesa on Dobson and Guadalupe. So oh, wow. um, we have all worked in the restaurant industry and specifically pizza restaurants. Um, basically from the point we could all work my, uh, my first job I mentioned was at Subway, but right after that, I worked for a pizza restaurant out here for like four years um, my mom worked for a separate one. So did my sister and my brother. So we knew the business in and out. Um, we were from New York. We know what good pizza tastes like. We know what good Italian food is. My, my mom made Sunday dinner meals every every single weekend. So, you know, we, we opened up the business at the very beginning of 2019. Um, and on the side from, again, like I mentioned, my broadcast career, um, I've just run marketing and social media and, you know, all sort of the uh, any media elements that come with that in addition to working there on the side whenever whenever I can help out I'll go pick up a few shifts and sling some pizzas for them <laughs> dude well-rounded well-rounded individual That's yeah I mean, it's, it's a good skill to have I mean who doesn't like pizza right <laughs> absolutely dude do you ever have anybody because Mesa I mean everywhere like Mesa Scottsdale Phoenix especially during spring training season like there's a lot of people that come in have you ever had any like big people come in Oh yeah, it's funny. Or, or like that wall of fame. Yeah, yeah. So we we started up actually. We have um I don't know how familiar we are with hip hop, but sincerely Collins comes in all the time. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, he's I think he's a Mason native. He um he grew up in that area. He comes in quite often. And then funny enough, with um when I worked for the Orem Owls, um that was the first minor league team I worked for. They were an Angels affiliate, so um their spring training stadium in Tempe is less than ten miles from the restaurant. So um, once all of my friends who were playing for the team um, saw that we had opened a restaurant, they're like, bro, I can't wait to come out there, try it during spring training. So a um, couple of guys who, who uh, were on that team and still play for the Angels organization, um, James Ziemba, who was one of the lefty pitchers, and um, Isaac Matson, who actually got traded to the Orioles um, for Dillard Bundy this past offseason, um, came in and visited. And, and I think those, you know, I have a lot of a lot of friends still working in, in that the Angels organization who play really close by there. So I, I, you know, we've had a few of them come visit, and I think there will be more more to come uh, pretty soon too. Free promoting right there. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, it was cool to see those guys too because it was two years after I had worked for the team and yeah. uh, didn't get to catch up with them until then. So it was pretty awesome. <laughs> Interesting. Who for you? And I guess we'll wrap this up with this one. My goal one day is to be like Rogan and go just five hours straight shooting. <laughs> We'll get there one day when people actually care. Um, but for you, you've already had your, you already said you had your dream interview, right? And Jimmy Johnson, like who, who would be like the next big guy that you'd want to interview? Oh man. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I would, I grew up, uh, Eli Manning was always one of my favorite athletes. Um, and you know, this is a, maybe a weird answer, but I would love to, do something with Gary Cohen or Kevin Burkhart. Cause again, those are my, my two role models growing up on top of Jimmy Johnson. So like if I could 
you know, collaborate and work with those guys in any facet by the time my career ends, I'll have considered it a success because I've always looked up to them. They're the perfect consummate professionals. And if I can emulate anything close to their career or even garner, you know, any, any kind of, um, not attention from them, but, you know, just recognition to, to where I'm working alongside them or even as a colleague of some kind, I would consider that to be, you know, career fulfilled almost. I'd <laughs> be a full circle moment. Yeah, well, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, that, that would be absolutely surreal. <laughs> and it brings that, like, full circle to this podcast, too, because that's what we first started with, talking about uh, Kevin Burkhardt especially. I mean, to me yep. still, like, I can't think of anybody else who kind of, like, made that climb from uh, – I mean, having a job in sports in general, it's, you should appreciate it and be mm-hmm. – uh, I mean – be grateful for it but from where he was going with just kind of again on sny for the mets games was just doing i don't want to call them pointless stories but they were not what he's doing now you know mm-hmm. they go from that, to, that before he worked for sny he was working at a car dealership he was he was a car salesman and that it's just so cool to hear stories like that and think that that could be you one day that's unbelievable and you're working your ass off too dude like you are really kicking ass right now you started in high school when you were 15 years old still going at it and given the current times too, able to pick up two more jobs after losing one i mean you're winning right now i, I wouldn't say that i wouldn't say i'm winning it's all part of the process so thank <laughs> you i mean i i enjoy the process and like i like i mentioned at the very beginning i'm just trying to work work my ass off work as hard as i can pick up as many opportunities as possible See where it takes me. I'm so bummed. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's only gonna break up with you. He's definitely gonna break up with me. Should've used tick pick. Wait, what'd you say? Tick pick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, tick pick. I thought you said tick pick. No hidden fees. Download today. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.